Welcome to Beyond the Map, a podcast that looks beyond the obvious to understand the hidden geographies that make our world. I'm Joe Sharp, Professor of Geography and Scotland's Geographer Royal. Dust. It really is too small a thing to worry about, isn't it? Yes, it can be a bit embarrassing when friends come around and you realise there's a thin film of dust over things you wish were sparkling clean. But the famous anthropologist Mary Douglas said that dirt was just matter out of place. Isn't this true for dust too? Isn't it just wee bits of stuff in the wrong place? Not just in the wrong place, perhaps, but also the wrong time. When we say something is dusty, whether it's a book or a professor, we often mean that it's old or old-fashioned. The modern world is imagined to be clean and dust-free. But really, dust is nothing to worry about on the scale of things we've considered in this podcast so far, isn't it? When we think about the environmental challenges we're facing in the 21st century, we tend to think big. Global warming, the ozone hole, megavolcanoes, earthquakes, or perhaps the devastation brought by large-scale conflicts, even, at the very worst, a nuclear explosion. We tend not to think about the small things, the very smallest things, like dust. Let's look beyond the dusty bookcases of my office, although we will be returning here later, to a few examples. At the end of September 2023, the Guardian newspaper reported that 98% of Europeans were living in areas with toxic air. In the United Kingdom, 75% of the population is living in areas where exposure to this toxic air is between one and two times the World Health Organization guidance. In Germany, 75% are living in areas where it is more than twice this recommended maximum level. These measurements refer to PM2.5, tiny airborne particles mostly produced by burning fossil fuels. Some of these can pass through the lungs and into the bloodstream, affecting almost every organ in the human body. It is estimated that these particles have led to 400,000 additional deaths per year. In addition to this, environmental disasters often have dusty consequences. In his book, The Earth Transformed, environmental historian Peter Frankopan calls the drying of the Aral Sea in Kazakhstan as a result of the introduction of modern farming, the worst case of ecocide in the history of the Soviet Union. He says the following. The reworking of the Aral Sea's tributaries into irrigation channels was as ill-conceived as it was proved devastating. The exposure of the dry seabed of the Aral Sea, once the world's fourth largest, has reached 87,000 square kilometres by 2010, with winds spreading 45 million metric tonnes of salty and contaminated dust every year and creating dust plumes that can reach 400 kilometres in length and 40 kilometres in width. He continues, this now directly affects some 5 million people with one in two women suffering from serious gynaecological diseases as a result. We might think that this is a Soviet example from our dirty past. We are now working towards a greener, cleaner form of production. But as we saw from the discussion with Laurie Parsons in the Carbon Colonialism podcast, it's really not so straightforward as this. The switch to electric vehicles seems like one such clean move. No more dirty petrol and diesel emissions. But at the moment, vehicle tyres are a leading source of microplastics. Plastic dust, if you like. 
Microplastics are found in high concentrations throughout the Earth's environments, even in the Arctic, and within each one of us. It is estimated that almost 7 million tonnes of particles from tyres and vehicle brakes are emitted each year. This is actually considerably higher particle pollution than from car exhausts, and it is set to increase with electric vehicles, because their batteries make them heavier as has the trend in car sales towards larger vehicles, what some people have called autobesity. And this together creates more wear on brakes, on tyres and on road surfaces, creating more dust. The batteries, of course, also require minerals, which have to be mined. Cue more dust. So the more that I have explored this, the more that I realise that the tiniest of things are absolutely central to the way our modern world is. Why don't we think about dust more? Thankfully, my guest today, Jay Owens, has. Her book, Dust, the World in a Trillion Particles, came out in 2023 to fantastic reviews. So this podcast is looking at the hidden geographies that make our world. Dust is something that seems so small and insignificant. You say, rather brilliantly, it's at the very limit point of formlessness, the closest stuff gets to nothing. And yet you show us how fundamental it is to the modern world. It's just the perfect example of how different times and scales interact uh, to make the world. And you start with dust in your office. And I, I couldn't help when I was reading it, but look around my own office. And I'm sure everyone reading the book will look up at that particular point and um, look around their room. And I think in our imaginations, the modern is clean, efficient, hygienic and dust free. But you argue that it's modernity itself that creates the problem of dust. And there's so many uh, wonderful examples in, in, in your book. But can we start with the problem of dust in the home? Perhaps start where, where most of us think about it. Whether it's a problem of dust or the problem of procrastination for me at the time, as I was a student and working on my master's at UCL and trying to work out what to write a master's thesis about and sort of working through just studying urban geography there and working through all the sort of standard topics and then wondering, you know, as the mind wanders as it does, why is there so much fluff? under my table. How can there be so much fluff under my table? I was living in a new build, um, new, newly converted studio flat, and it was indeed you know, clean and modern and white and light and bright, and the furniture was all quite new. And yet there was this fluff and it kept on reappearing. And each day one would sweep, sweep up the fluff and the next day there would be more fluff. And I wondered where it came from. I wondered what it was doing. I wondered what it was made of. Um, I wondered what I had to do about it. Um, the balance, you know you're procrastinating in all of these circumstances, right? A very relatable feeling. And so is my worrying about the dust, is this you know, a sensible degree of hygiene or is this me slacking off from trying to write a master's thesis? Um, yes, is the answer to all of these questions. Um, but I got interested in it. I mean, what, it wasn't dirty. And that was a sort of paradox that started me writing about this. That it wasn't, it, it, you know, coming from a background also in anthropology and Mary Douglas and the ideas of dirt as a matter out of place. And like, was this dust out of place at all? Or was it where it ought to be? It was where I wasn't. And it wasn't yucky it wasn't gross it wasn't in the same category as other kinds of dirt of discarded bits of food or bodily waste or um it wasn't muddy or it wasn't sticky it lacked viscosity um so what was this stuff it was a sort of 
it was strange because it didn't fit into usual categories. And that started to think as it's actually an e- interesting medium to think about. Um, first, for domestic space, uh, what do we learn by the behaviours, the house cleaning manuals, the rules for dealing with dust? What does that tell us about what substance it is? And what's, what does that tell us about uh, mid-20th century society and the role of women? Um, but then beyond that, by thinking through something sort of tiny and transgressive, where can that idea take me? And turns out that was much, much further than anyone might have ever dreamed possible. Took you right across the world. <laughs> but I, I loved the way that you kind of gave us a history of, of dust in the home in, in a way that it wasn't that people, again, we've got this image of people in the past as being dirty and that it's only recently that we've managed to get clean. But you suggest that it's actually changes in the modern world that that made dust a problem. The the invention of electric light suddenly we could see dust, I suppose, all through the day instead of just you know on a very sunny day. Uh, the, and then fascinatingly, the rise of consumerism with 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 the empire and emerging connections around the world. Suddenly there was stuff that people had to get dusty, and it's it's always you know if there isn't stuff, is there the problem of things getting dusty? And exactly in what kind of stuff and what kind of surfaces it's made of that, um, you know, dust shows off much better on smooth, shiny glass type surfaces. If you, you need a really pristine glazed or ceramic or glass type surface for it to really show up brilliantly. If you're working on a rough wooden table or sort of earthenware or a, you know, kind of rough um, whitewash wall, you know, it's got that roughness of texture, so a little bit more roughness by a bit, a bit of dust being on top of it. You know, not going to really show up. But I, I felt, I mean, I started off in that, that line of thinking from trying to reading the sort of historians of the medieval and early modern periods who were very keen to defend their subjects from accusations that medieval people were very, very filthy. Um, this, the idea seems to have stuck. I don't know what we blame it on. Blackadder, possibly? The, I was going to say that's Baldrick is probably yes. the reason that we think of the of the Middle the Ages as, peasant, as dirty. You know, up to his knees in muck. You know, I mean, you, you're loosely aware of people's sort of longhouses and things like that and kind of co-living with animals a bit like that. But the historians sort of seek to exist that they weren't as filthy as it was all that, that people did bathe or wash, even if they were not having baths as such, that, you know, you have to think back to Roman and Byzantine, you know, you've got full, um, you know, full, full sauna steam room bathing facilities going on there. So it's okay, people, people aren't filthy, filthy, but you do have different ideas of cleanliness and that it's, um, and how that changes, how that's historically constituted is interesting. It's, but yeah, Victorian clutter becomes this moment. You've got the electric light and you've got the stuff for the dust to sit on. Um, and you've got a sort of middle class who are seeking to distinguish themselves by their possession of fine objects. And at that point, you know, just and then alongside, of course, the rise of cleaning technologies that uh, marketing and advertising perhaps has a lot to answer for here in terms of certainly the escalation through the 20th century of standards of cleanliness that are accepted. Um, you know, the more there was a thought that technology will be labor, labor saving, and um, that didn't really work through. No, and the fact that it has such gendered patterns that I had a sense of some of this history, but you argue that there was a, a concern of middle-class women not having enough to do. I mean, 
in this series, I, I spoke to um, Leslie Curran, who talks about the modern city and the fact that there was concern about women, middle class, genteel women being out in the public. And I suppose that was there was a sense of that being a kind of dangerous, dirty space. So they had the protection of the gentility of the home. But I hadn't thought it in, in terms of this as being something for women to do. But the, the fact that there was that kind of morality linked to cleanliness, linked to a particular gender uh, ideology as well that emerged at this point. At a couple of different points, yes. There's a, certainly a post-World... I mean, I end up looking at America in the post-World War II period, particularly, where there's this drive to get women back into the home and not taking jobs away from our brave boys. Um, so you get a real, like, peak housework of... The housework manual is just assigning a solid eight hours a day. You know, as soon as the kids and the husband is out of the house and off to school, through to the time the husband is back through the house uh, waiting his martini, um, and just constant dusting labour there. And, I mean... With the best will in the world, I can't see how there was enough dust to really go around and justify it. But still, the sweeping, the hoovering, the washing down of blinds was all actively prescribed. Um, but also a shift in the earlier, in sort of, um, you know, around 19, early 1900s, as the servant in Britain, servants moved into other forms of work. And you've got middle-class women having to do their own housework in a way that they hadn't. You've got a bit of an expanding middle class and not the labour that they have relied on to do that. And the curiosity that hoovers and vacuum cleaners and all of these sort of, you know, tools and swiffers and gadgets and things are supposed to make that easier, but just seem to raise standards throughout that period. That it's the, the marketing is focused on having the cleaner home rather than any idea of what women could do if you freed them up with more time. And, you know, if, if you can do the cleaning an hour what then no 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 you must spend five hours cleaning well that's the dangerous thing of what women might might do because <laughs> again you link it to the the suffragettes that you know one of the things they might do is go and speak to other women about uh, uh, and one of my absolute favorite um a uh, couple of lines in in the book is you, know, you say enter the domestic science expert a group of ladies who if ever there's a feminist hell will be tortured eternally with feather dusters. These were the women who made careers out of telling other women that they couldn't have careers because housework was a big enough job in itself. I mean, it's... There's some astonishing people. I write about a woman called Christine Frederick, who is sort of this efficiency expert in the sort of 1920s and the 1930s, who um, her husband... Mr. Frederick is a sort of businessman and he brings his own the ideas of tailorism and efficiency and all of the kind of production line, observation of people's working patterns and, and efficiency monitoring there. She takes it into the home and turns it into a business empire. Like this woman is tireless and extremely smart and very, very enterprising that, you know, she's sort of is part of the movement that ends up setting the standard for how high your kitchen counters are in the sense that there's a useful triangle between your sink and your oven and your prep area. And, you know, like every gesture, the, the reaching up, how high should you reach? These sort of micro-efficiency experts, intellectually brilliant, but dedicated to and you know herself she profits substantially and has a very interesting career but it's all in the cause of making women better at staying in this small space it's uh, quite quite a paradox the power of of geographical studies like yours is that you can link through the immediate and domestic sphere into things that are happening at other spatial and temporal scales to show that you know this is not just an you know, I, I say that sort of with scare quotes. It's not just something that happens in the home, but this is something that crosses these scales. And I suppose of the different examples in your book, nuclear bombs are the opposite scale, I suppose, in terms of it being global and um, 
and terrifying. I mean, I grew up as a teenager in the 1980s under the threat of the mushroom cloud, absolutely convinced that that was going to be the end of me and imagining the nu- nuclear winter that would, would ensue and, and what it was going to be like to live through this. And this was this was literally what drove my teenage nightmares. But you ask us to shift our attention from the moment of the big dramatic explosion, that kind of, that, that aesthetic that is is burned into into the minds of those of us who've seen it on various programs. But to move from that to the ensuing dust that you say is more important, what, what's, what's important about this shift? I think two things. Firstly, it's that the dust actually existed and happened as a consequence of the 1,030 uh, nuclear tests that were done in um, America, in France, in the British, did in Australia, um, and other countries around the world, that the mushroom cloud has existed sort of, well, twice used in war and then as the object of fear and anticipation. But the radiation has already existed, particularly from the above background tests in the 50s and 60s. And it's also and it's where the harm of those tests was done. Um, you know, the, the deserts in which those tests took place, so in Nevada in the United States, um, at various atolls in the Pacific, they weren't uninhabited. And I write about that at uh, some length, but they were very, very underpopulated. And they were, you know, as far from centers of the population as these things happened. The tests themselves, you know, the explosions did not kill people for obvious reasons. It was was reasonably properly managed. But the radiation is thought by the um, IPPPN, uh, Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, to have potentially be going to kill, not just having uh, caused the deaths, but to cause in future um, over a million people through uh, through cancers, through um, you know, the impact of radiation on the body over very, very long periods of time. It's an enormous death toll and it gets completely forgotten because it lacks the single moment in time and the single location and the ease of, of, of consequence measurement that a the moment of the bomb does that it's people getting thyroid cancers 30 years later you know you have to analyze this statistically you have to look at it against you know comparable rates of death in other populations in other places um no individual knows necessarily if their death would or their death of a loved one was caused by radiation from nuclear testing it's an entirely statistical different diff, sort of diffuse process very in that sense dusty you know in that sense difficult to think with and therefore easily ignored but you know what i think is important is to actually recognize that the nuclear testing this idea of building a deterrent in order to save lives has actually taken many many lives it's not just a sort of spectacle in the desert of, of bright flashes of i mean at some points in las vegas a whole industry grew up around watching the distant flashes of people drinking sort of nuclear cocktails on rooftops and having people in Utah having little viewing parties to see this green flash on the horizon. And, you know, and then a few hours later, a day later, you know, there's a bit of dust on people's cars or something like that. And the milk they drink has actually been completely irradiated, but they may or may not have received the instructions to flush that. And even the awareness of the harm has just been, I think, very, very limited. And it's, it's a tragedy that needs to be, and there are people campaigning um, to make that more, much more known. Yeah, because I think, um, you know, I was very aware of the 
the mobile nature of, of nuclear fallout with, with Chernobyl. Obviously, we were all looking at the maps that were kind of heading towards us. But you're right, this is, I think you say it's, uh, because it's so small It's and, and it's about statistics and it's about a much longer time period, it's so easily denied. Um, and no one's there with the cameras 15, 20 years later. And, and, and what would you point the cameras at anyway? And it's, it really is, I think, one of the clearest examples of this idea that y- you talk about in the book from um, Rob Nixon, this notion of slow violence. It's so much easier to understand violence when there's a, a perpetrator, there's a victim, there's a direct line of cause and something dramatic like a mushroom cloud. We can see what's happening. But some of the most pernicious, some of the most powerful processes that are working in different ways, whether it be, you know, health inequalities or racism or whatever, are things that we don't see the same way because they're diffused. They're very everyday. And this is such a chilling example of that. And the combination in the book of your showing the maps of the drift of the dust across the US particularly, but also the colonial implications of this. And again, this resonates so nicely with a conversation that I had with Laurie Parsons earlier in the, in the podcast series about carbon colonialism. This, he's using that kind of language of not, not of dust, but of cleanliness that you know our new modern green industries in the West can seem clean because we've got these hidden supply chains that basically all the crap goes somewhere else. And here we've got a similar kind of process that in order to protect those of us in the West from the threat of nuclear war, we have tests elsewhere. And as you said, you know, there's this ideology that, that deserts are, are empty, they're unpopulated, that different parts of the world populations are, are perhaps not as, as valuable. So the French and the British use their colonial territories to do the tests. And of course, the other thing is they, there's not going to be the same kind of health surveillance long term in these populations. Absolutely. I think in particularly in the Australian case, which is it's a curious one, it's often pointed that Australia is independent, but still um, has sufficiently close colonial relationships that Britain is just practically sort of invited in. Do you want some desert to bomb? Um, But it's that indigenous ways of life in particularly the Australian deserts aren't recognised as as presence and aren't recognised as inhabitants. And and this has been an issue for, of course, colonised people in the United States as well, trying to make uh, reclaim land claims and treaty claims when their modes of living on the land are not settler agriculture necessarily. And so there aren't little fences and there aren't nice farms that you can point to and say, we have always been here. And but yet people have always been here, but through more mobile ways of life, um, particularly in the Australian outback, you move very large distances because it's a it is a Spartan, it is a harsh environment. And in those sessions, there were, I mean, some of the Australian situations, there was certainly actually some risk of people not being, they were told that there was nuclear testing on their land or not being kept away from it adequately because their presence was not monitored, not known to the authority, and they were not thought to matter in this way. But every single nuclear test was taking place on what is either indigenous or nomadic people's lands. Um, you know, even stuff up in Novaya Zemlo, a test took place in Russia, uh, caused risk to the Nenets population in uh, Siberia. And, it, you know, it reveals the marginalization, of course, of indigenous people spatially, that they are pushed into the most empty places because the richer and more um, uh, ecologically productive places have been taken. I got very angry reading lots of bits of this book. Good, but I'm sorry. And it's it's like it is right. 
it is right for the anger, anger to be recognised. But um, as various people have said, the introduction is not an easy read, that you realise scales of harm and the just the millions of deaths per year at air pollution. Um, another example of this sort of slow violence, that it's not so immediately visible but you so you don't the idea that it's actually one of the major killers in our society is sort of slips under the radar a little bit and people continue to drive with burning stoves just the the energy usage from other things we do and it's 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 really hard to think about you have to think about more fundamental changes to life than is necessarily comfortable yes and it makes it difficult to bring these changes in because of the diffuse nature of the impacts because there isn't that direct cause and effect in the sense that I, you know, I can't point to all the people with their large SUVs in the city and say, you've caused this, you know, if they'd hit, if they'd hit a child, yes, we can see the, the, the cause and effect. But when it relies on statistics, I think particularly at the moment, it's, it's sometimes difficult to, to have those kind of scientifically informed discussions about what, uh, what should be done. Very much. I mean, all science becomes political. That um, I mean, in London, we're seeing a lot of controversy about the ULES, the ultra low emission zone, which in which nine out of 10 cars are absolutely unaffected. And it's basically only older diesel cars that are being asked to pay a pollution surcharge to, to be used. But it's been spun into the culture wars. It's I think it, it, it hits people's own. I mean, that one, at least nuclear testing was done by some other bastard, you know, whereas cars, people don't want to be thinking of themselves as the bad guy. And they're taking these journeys for good purposes. Of course they are. And rec- being asked to recognise that that is causing harm to other people is, is uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's difficult to think with. You know, this is why I sort of started, kept on writing and traveling and, and exploring with dust because it's it is difficult to think with it's not an easy substance it's not sort of black and white you know, to spoil a cliche here um so it's good it's good for our thought it it helps us think through complexities more but it doesn't make always for easy campaigning it doesn't make for appealing issues no i, th- I think it's really effective as a, as a way of making material some of these processes you know small material but nevertheless it, it's i think that kind of that materiality the the tangibility of it starts to starts to make meaningful a lot of these these things that these processes that are otherwise very difficult to grasp if a lot of people are thinking about the problem of dust beyond looking around the room they're in whilst they're reading a book the obvious other example that comes to mind is the American Dust Bowl, which I think a lot of us probably learned a bit about at school. And, you know, we're, we're told something about the, the problem with climate, perhaps some poor farming practices. But it's another way of thinking about how modernity has led to the creation of dust and the problem of dust. Absolutely. And I mean, that one's also, it starts as a colonial story about the white settlement of the plains in the sort of 1870s, 1880s, through to about 1900. The the core of the Dust Bowl region was really one of the last places in the United States to be uh, settled and for farming. But, and, you know, and then just 30 years, it sort of turns to powder. So, but the arrival of farming itself, problematic colonial-wise, but ecologically not one thing. It was the expansion of farming after World War One. You know, you, you've got the um, closing of Russian Ukrainian grain shipments, so you've got a change in the world grain markets. It increases the price for wheat, and you have the recognition in the American West, which turns out to be quite good at growing wheat, that there's there's a huge amount of money to be made, and so what were sort of 
individual family sort of small 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 farms become very quickly um, aggregated into much bigger units it becomes a really industrialized mode of farming it's all fueled by debt people have mortgages they've taken out you know the latest shiny tractor and it's I mean, somebody at one point, the High Plains was called the most modern place in America. It's the last thing you would think about if you go there now, but it's it's financialized, it's tied to world markets. You know, it's more like working at the sort of the stock exchange than it is. It's a mode of economic gambling and farming practices that you know, had been recognized and you know, were known. The idea of letting the soil rest, um, cover crops, things like that were just not economically viable because you've got large landowners seeking to maximize the profit from their land, non-resident farmers, people kind of commuting into farms to farm them without much necessarily sort of personal involvement that a, a resident farmer might have for their land in these sorts of situations. So it's the rapaciousness of demand for just production at all cost and any cost that stresses the land and takes it far, far beyond its carrying capacity so that when you have some very, very high heat very and drought years for a period of the 1930s, you've got a landscape that cannot cope with that and cannot recover. You know, previously when it's been, you know, 50 years before when it's prairie grass grazed by, you know, it's the, the grass roots hold everything together. It's You've got high winds there. You've always had high winds. You've had big 20 multi-year mega droughts in the past and indigenous populations had moved away at certain times that the population density of the plains would rise and fall a bit depending with the ecological conditions because yes sometimes it was much less habitable than than others but capitalism high modernity that sense of domination over nature for the profit takes away that those I don't know what we call it, mitigation, take, takes away those balancing factors and just says, exploit, exploit, exploit. And then you have just complete ecological devastation, towering walls of dirt, a, a just genuinely apocalyptic looking landscape for sort of between five and 10 years. The descriptions of it are, are, are staggering in terms of the scale of the amount of, of movement of material and, and the kind of feedback loops that I didn't know about in terms of the electrostatic that you had in the middle of these storms, you would have barbed wire fences kind of glowing because of the static electricity. But also, of course, as you as you explain so so well in the book, that then is a feedback loop that the static picks up more dust and uh, and just and just makes the whole thing even worse. And again, something that is based in one place but has implications elsewhere. You had snowplows moving the dirt across the country because of the amount of material that was that was being moved. It, yes, no, it helped become a political issue where, when some of the big dirt clouds, you know, ended up blowing uh, east over Washington and New York. And then uh, Roosevelt and the uh, politicians in session are like, oh, oh dear, we, we better do something about this then. Being able to see it and tangibly touch it makes, makes a big difference in terms of recognising it's not a distant problem. But astonishing quantities of sediment moved. I mean, it's, I think like 350 million tonnes in inside a year, you know, it's, it's a significant fraction of the sediment that flows down the Mississippi River, one of the biggest rivers in the world. It's geological, you know, this is, this is, it, it's not the image of sort of human impact on the planet as just a kind of little thin surface layer. Like this, this is, this is planetary. But, but I think what makes it all the more comprehensible in the way that you that, that you present it is it, it's not just driven by this 
profit motive. I mean, we've seen this with agriculture in a lot of places, particularly in, in parts of the global south, where you know development projects or, cap or um, colonialism has sort of moved from multi-cropping and um, fallow periods to, towards cash crops. But there's also you also explain that there's kind of a morality of making the land productive. When we look at how everyone's working together, yes, there's that kind of capitalistic drive, that modernistic attempt to kind of capture nature, and we can be very very critical of that because it seems, you know, it seems so hubristic. But then when you you listen to what to what some of the individual farmers are are saying about their motivation, and there's a kind of morality to to work and to labour and not to do anything seems to be kind of immoral. They're not the bad guys straightforwardly because these are people who are doing what they think is the right thing. In some instances, yes. I focus particularly on an autobiography by Lawrence Fabida, who's a farmer up in Nebraska, if I call correctly. And, you know, he's not a big mega capitalist. He is a farmer farming his own field. And he's an astonishing figure. He is, how hard he labours to save his farm is actually intensely moving. And he's probably making more efforts than his neighbours at certain points to do things calling it listing up the earth which is kind of ploughing big ridge furrows into it to slow the passage of the wind um, and uh, decrease by slowing the wind decrease how much dust it can pick up um, so this actually informs some of the dust defences we see uh, much more recently on Owens Lake and other places in California it's about that's a different story but he, he's he's his hard work is astonishing but is he always doing something that's maybe ecologically the correct thing slightly harder to say but the morality attached to the plains at that time was was profound as i say it really was the center of america in an identity sense that manifest destiny that was being talked of in the in the sort of 1860s and when in terms of settling the plain that this vision to possess the whole of the confidence um people talk about through the territorial expansion and making this land productive was the essence of what white Americans thought being that about that it's you know it seems so marginal now but it was it was the center of the place you know and a story throughout the book marginal places are central to the making of the modern world that we think of it as empty now we think of deserts as Again, we're taught to think of deserts as empty, that through nuclear testing, through the water supply that grew Los Angeles, through um, through the Dust Bowl, that these are the heart of the world we live in now was made in these places just as much as it was made in the big cities. And yet, despite the importance of that notion of a ma of manifest destiny, the the fact that uh, America was uh, was different, was God given, had this mission. The surprising thing is that we're seeing almost exactly the same thing happening in the in the USSR. And the example you provide there with the RLC, it's not capitalism, but we come to the same place. Absolutely. And it's why I sort of talk about modernity in the book, because I'm aware that the USSR in so many ways, the Aral Sea being a, one example, the Virgin Lands Project in terms of expanding farming, uh, the nuclear testing is doing really very, very many the same things as Americans. And um, I'm sure that there are certain uh, historians or socialist scholars who might quibble about precise wordings about this. There's, the USSR is locked into a world, world system of trade and competition and economic competition with the US, so such that for all the US, uh, that state socialism was meant to be a different, vastly different economic model, it actually ends up 
repeating, caught in the same competition traps that a huge amount of the, the Aral Sea becomes drained because the Amudaria River gets used to irrigate cotton and absolutely escalating cotton targets through from Lenin, through Stalin, through Khrushchev, you know, 3 million a year, 3.5 million tonnes a year, 5, 4 million tonnes a year, until the targets are absolutely impossible. There is no more water to produce that much cotton until the ground is kill is dead with salt um cotton is cotton is a terrible crop it's incredibly water intensive but it has the ability to grow in deserts if it's watered enough so it just produces it it, it, it what's the word facilitates it, it has the affordances that enable human beings to make terrible economic decisions and it's um so, so yes, in in the in the the Aral Sea becomes drained by this this rush. You know, the Dust Bowl is is uh, wheat growing, and the Aral Sea is cotton growing. Um, that absolutely, absolutely, the same shared attitude of scientific domination of nature. That with increasing scientific knowledge and good engineering, that natural constraints don't matter. That they can be overcome. That. There is, there is freedom from scarcity and freedom from the arbitrariness of natural calamity with the sufficient appliance of domination, essentially. And also, I think there, a sense of morality, I suppose, as well, that, you know, that, that we have to kind of show that our way of doing this is better than capitalism. We can, we almost, we can exploit nature better than, than, than capitalists do. I mean, so as, again, some of the quotes from Mao, as well as the Soviet leaders, an overwhelming sense that nature was there to be tamed to be to be exploited to be used in the ambitions to create a, a socialist future a communist future one of the things one of the difficult things to recognize is that in, in many of these instances it is a desire to lift people out of poverty well within capitalism in some sense but to the goal for progress is not an evil one it is not a um it's you know, there's there, there, people are trying to, or there is a goal of creating some sort of better world. You know, that when I write about the Owens Valley in California and its water is taken to grow the city of Los Angeles, but do people in cities need water? Yes, they do. It's not directly waste. It's not, I mean, I'm very critical of it. I'm very pro Los Angeles increasing its water saving methods substantially and stopping taking that water. But, um, you know, the, the history is that there's, it becomes a logic of the greatest good, actually, and this is stated explicitly by some of the politicians at the time, that the moral thing to do is to take these natural resources and deploy them for the, the good of the, of the greatest number of people. But that always means that cities win and that um, more marginal, more rural, more remote places will never succeed and never have their never receive environmental protection if they if it's always for the good of the greatest number. But it also makes it a very easily hijacked argument. People who otherwise don't talk a lot about the most marginalised in society using that notion to hammer away at environmental changes, so that we're hearing that. To go back to the ULES example in in London, that's you know, we're suddenly got politicians saying, "Oh, but that's going to target the most vulnerable because we can." And, and again, it comes back to that, I suppose, this kind of slow and fast violence distinction. We can see that taking an old car or or charging someone to drive an old car into London is directly impacting their livelihood. We don't see the impact that's having on however many people in terms of the, the environmental impacts of that car. 
we've talked a lot about how the use of of dust as a as a focal point for the book um, makes visible things that otherwise we wouldn't, or makes tangible things that we might otherwise not be able to to um, understand as well. And I think it also shows us it provides us with a warning about heroic attempts to provide techno fixes to our current predicament. And you know, this was back in the papers again yesterday about some of the un- unintended consequences of trying to come up with big technical, again, modern, I suppose, solutions to to the kind of climate change, to the uh, environmental degradation that we're, that we're witnessing. So what is it that Dust tells us about, uh, as a warning about these sort of techno fixes? Generally, to be cautious of sort of grand, grand claims, I think, that um, it's, that it sometimes, I mean, uh, I talk about the Owens Valley in California, where one, uh, basically water was taken away from the valley uh, by Los Angeles through a series of rather fast legal deals in the early 20th century. Uh, the valley then turns to dust. It became America's largest dust source. And then in 2000, after decades of um, legal action, uh, finally it became admitted, well, we've got to do something about this then. We can't actually have such a big health hazard just hanging out here in California. And over 20 years, over $2 billion has been spent on dust defences and stopping this dust. And it has worked, actually. The air quality is now considerably better. It's There's an ongoing legal theft about whether precisely it's hit safe limits or not. The, I think the lawsuits will never end in that place. Um, but it's done it through absolutely te- sort of terraforming this dried lake 110 square miles turned into a completely industrial landscape at you know the same cost it would probably cost to build housing on it at that scale um so this in from water to stop the dust using gravel um using a bit of managed planting and it producing a very very artificial environment and it has worked you know that there is much much less um airborne dust there than there has in the past but at what cost? At an absolutely vast cost. It's not an ecological solution. That would have been bringing the water back. That could have been done a lot more cheaply. Um, and that in, in restoring the lake to the lake it once was. Um, and so that could have been done. That could have been done more cheaply. Um, it would require Los Angeles. Well. Quite, yeah, it's a fairly, fairly, fairly complex game. It would require actually probably more cheaply is cheeky because it would require Los Angeles building a lot of water saving methods. Um, you know, actually just hydraulically bringing the water back to a lake costs less than two billion dollars. But uh, yes. the water saving building the desalinization plants in Los Angeles doesn't. So mm, okay, I can, I can be fact checked on that one. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to sort of snotty there. It's just I had the understanding from reading the book that this was a, a kind of more natural uh, attempt at intervention. What was being done in terms of wetlands and no. No, it's 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 become naturalized, but through the power of nature to bring life back in its own way. The birds were not brought back by no. human action. The birds just saw some nice water and go, let's sit on it then. Let's eat some tasty brine flies. Um, so it's, I mean, I was reading in the papers two days ago, I think in the New York Times about a, a plan to seed the Atlantic Ocean with iron dust in order to feed the phytoplankton um, that they make algae and that they that they should proliferate and then capture CO2 and into organic carbons and then fall to the seafloor and take it out. And this is indeed a natural system. And you know, a, you know that in, in this way, dust in, mineral dust is a large part of the carbon cycle. It's part of the oxygen cycle. It's, it doesn't just 
sit there on its own. It, it plays a huge role in other world systems too. And dust from the Sahara replenishes the Amazon. I mean, it, dust is not always a problem. No, no, indeed. And it's it's like when it's being identified as a source of geoengineering to take carbon out of the atmosphere, and the same with solar radiation management, there's certainly plausible mechanisms whether human intervention can actually a repeat that at a scale that delivers the results that the boosterists promise. You know, the New York Times editorial uh, op-ed writers were very confident about it and calling for more research and various commenters are citing other papers and the responses going, guys, this has been trialled at certain senses and it doesn't operate at the scales and at the orders of magnitude that you are claiming here whatsoever. And similarly with geoengineering, there's just the huge questions about unintended consequences and control. But recognising the complexity of dust in climate modelling helps us understand of how completely unpredictable dusty geoengineering could likely be, that these are not these are not simple models. These it is interfering with every other climate model. It has feedback loops within feedback loops within feedback loops. Mathematically it exceeds the scale of model ability. Talking of work from Erica Thompson, who is a mathematician and modeler at UCL now, and um, she's writing about about yes about the limit points of models, where it's not just it's not just uncertain entry parameters, but actually uncertain dynamics within it. That um, I, I oversimplify that terribly for this. Everyone needs to uh, go read her book where she explains it far better. But that there are complexity is not always reducible to a definable set of outcomes and we need to and some of in in parts of climate systems are you know there are there are significant unknowns and more computing power is not necessarily going to give us very very clear answers yes that's a good idea no that's a good idea um and it, it makes all decisions intensely uncertain and deeply political i hadn't actually realized until recently just how much large-scale attempts there had been to interfere with climate, to change climate, particularly around cloud seeding for, for rain, and some of some of the geopolitics of it that the the Americans were thinking, well, this is this is great because the weather systems means that we can we can influence Russian weather, but they can't <laughs> they can't they can't do it to us back because of the way that the weather patterns go, and uh, the scale of some of the trials and you know before the Beijing Olympics to ha- to try and have the right weather, I had no idea there was quite such a lot of large scale interventions. And I think it was just this week a call to have an international moratorium on these kind of interventions till we understand them better. I think was it, the precautionary principle makes a lot of sense there, though. Sometimes the wording of these gets tricky because they're asking for more scientific research to be done on the one hand, but not on the other hand, no large scale trials and empiricism. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think we are so cl- you know close slash past the brink on um, the ecological crisis that there's not, we have to consider these things. There is no easy return to bucolic, small scale world. But how, yes, how do you research something that is also an absolutely, potentially a vast hazard? And how do you, you know, that academic research is, is, is okay, but somehow commercial research isn't, but all of this stuff is academic commercial partnerships. Um, there, there is no People have a fantasy that there is a sort of pure scientific academic research that is good and, you know, terrible Silicon Valley, God complex, geoengineers who are bad. And it's it's not 
that simple that they're the same people. But I guess the anxiety would be that it's back to the modernity that you've been writing about throughout the whole book, that we're looking for another way to manage the efficiency of systems. When you start talking about the green belt in the Sahara, which originally was one of these kind of heroic ideas of endless large-scale tree planting, which didn't work... But then you grind these great green walls across the Sahara and sort of round the top of much of China um, in order to stop the, the encroach of the desert. You know, great green wall is a metaphor. It's very hard. It's sort of imperishable. It's a barrier. Billions, I believe, of trees have been planted. And as somebody pointed out, if this had worked, it would look like the Amazon. It certainly does not. Billions of trees have been planted and sort of billions of trees have mostly died with some successes in some place and that's the interesting point that it doesn't work as a mega project but it does when operated in more locally specific ways in terms of sort of identity sometimes just like kind of legal and economic barriers that meant in one country farmers were kind of incentivized to chop down trees on their property because otherwise i think they got taxed as having a firewood asset or something like that <laughs> you know or identifying the right species in the right place using, you know, often they're quite ancient techniques of planting in pits and um, mulching them in and, you know, sort of designing little channels so that the water actually stays around the roots of the trees and things like that, rather than, you know, big, big tree planting projects are they're pretty industrial. You have a guy with a very big kind of drill that punches a hole and then you have another guy that punches a tree into the ground and it's like, it's sort of thonk, 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 thonk. It's the tree is not being, you know, the sapling is not being nurtured and, you know, given given much love. But when you do give the sapling a bit more attention, then it has a better chance of sticking around. And so you say we need to move from an image of the hero to, to one that's a bit a bit more like a janitor or a caretaker. And and I really like that kind of metaphor as a way of thinking about how we how we how we go forward. A friend of mine, um, philosopher Robin James, has said that uh, who cleans up after other people is as important a political question as who governs. And I love that as a provocation. And that was kind of where I was starting with. There's also a book, Verges, Francoise Verges, uh, Decolonial Feminism. And she says the question is, who cleans the world? And that is the, the key question. I kept thinking of that as I was reading your book. Yes, the sense of janitorialness is it, it's a mode of care, you know. And, and not, not to name drop too much, but another friend of mine, Deb Chatra, has a book coming out on infrastructure as care and all of these little unheralded systems behind the maintenance of the world. You know, maintenance isn't glamorous and isn't sexy, and you don't get a sort of big prize in your name on a building for keeping the sewers flowing and all of these sort of little things. But it, it's how the world goes round. And, um, but yes, in that dust is an argument for thinking at that scale as well, not just the, the, the global. Brilliant. I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you so much. <laughs>